From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. As the world gathers at COP27 to decide on the next steps in our response to the climate crisis, the biggest point of contention is one idea, climate justice. It's an idea that could force the richest nations, like Australia, to pay for the damages and loss that climate catastrophe is causing in poorer countries. But could it really happen? Is it viable? And would Australia ever sign up to the idea of climate reparations? Today, national correspondent for the Saturday paper, Mike Seckham, on how the countries facing devastation from our emissions are demanding justice. It's Tuesday, November 15. So, Mike, COP27 is happening right now and leaders from all over the world are gathering, but it's taking place under a bit of a shadow, isn't it? Because just a few days before the conference, word came down that the world, in in all likelihood, is not going to avoid warming of of 1.5 degrees. So how is that news being taken and and how are world leaders who are at this conference reacting? Well, um, as you say, just just before the the COP, the UN revealed that it was unlikely we would stay below 1.5 degrees of warming. And that's significant, I guess, because when they gathered for the last COP, you know, the goal was to uh, try and prevent more than 1.5 degrees of warming and to announce stronger commitments to reach to reach their Paris target. Part of, part of the problem, I guess, this time is that world leaders, particularly from, you know, wealthy countries, <laughs> have had a lot on their mind, you know, worldwide galloping inflation, the Ukraine war, foremost among them, and, of course, a consequence of both of those things, um, an energy price shock that's, you know, caused by the war and, and increased by the increasing inflation, which, which means, I guess, that even those leaders who are relatively progressive in their approach to climate, you know, like Joe Biden and Rishi Sunak, the new British PM, have been talking about increasing domestic gas supplies to try and bring prices down which, you know, a a lot of people see as a negative thing. Actually, I don't think it is all doom and gloom, to be honest. I think ultimately this will speed the pace of renewable energy because, you know, when when fossil fuels become more expensive, they become relatively less competitive. But this COP was supposed to be where countries announced they had lifted their ambitions and not many have. Mm. Right. Okay. So despite the warning from the UN and despite what we know about what happens at 1.5 degrees, which is significant. We're talking about things like drought and, and famine and the potential for 100 million people to be thrown into poverty as, as land becomes uninhabitable. World leaders are coming into COP27 without putting ambitious climate policy front and centre. So what does that mean then, Mike, for, for where we're heading and where should we look when we're trying to find ways to avert climate disaster? Well, you know, the way to avert climate disaster is to speed the pace of decarbonisation, you know, just stop using fossil fuels. I mean, the essential message is pretty clear. You know, the details get very complicated, obviously, and and that will involve massive investment. But actually, the hottest point of contention at this COP is not so much how we avert disaster, but how we compensate people for disasters which are increasingly inevitable because we haven't succeeded in mitigating climate change. So, you know, the the argument really is about the fact that it is basically – the rich industrialised world that has caused the problem of climate change by emitting enormous amounts of of greenhouse gases over the past century or so, but it is the developing world which is suffering, you know, proportionately greater consequences. 
And a lot of delegates have come from around the world, from civil society groups, from developing nations, intent on trying to get some kind of climate justice along these these lines. I, I spoke to one of them, Shiva Gounden. Yeah, I can hear clearly. Who's with Greenpeace and uh, is their Pacific delegate and was in Egypt for the COP. And we we had a a long talk. <laughs> we don't. We've been getting like one to two hours sleep maximum per day. And Shiva can claim a rare dispiriting double. In March 2015, he was a humanitarian worker and he was in Vanuatu, where he was cleaning up after Cyclone Pam. Now, Cyclone Pam was at that point the most powerful cyclone ever in the Southern Hemisphere, ever. And so he was there cleaning up the dreadful disaster that left behind there. Um, especially in terms of rebuilding, uh, especially in terms of uh, getting groups together uh, to, to get the agency back in the community. Less than a year later in February the following year, he was back in the country of his birth, Fiji, in the wake of Cyclone Winston, which was even stronger and more damaging than Cyclone Pam. That was devastation that I've never seen before uh, in all of my times doing post-disaster work. So, you know, the island's infrastructure wrecked by winds that went over 300 kilometres, gusted over 300 kilometres now. And you would see all power lines broken. Seven metre storm surges. Trees completely uprooted. Tens of thousands of homes destroyed. So much loss of life that Fiji has never seen before. But when I, when I spoke to Shiva, the thing that he remembered with particular sadness was the intangible losses, he said, like burial grounds that had been washed away. This is not something you can build a seawall against. You can't uh, change crop structures for. This is things that will stay with people and their psyche and their mental health, etc., for life. Where the remains of family members, you know, these are cultural monuments, valued and cherished, wiped away by climate change. You can't get back that cultural connection to that ancestral land. You can't get back if you have to relocate and move from that place to somewhere else and you lose that culture, uh, language of that community. So, like many of the campaigners, I guess, um, at COP, he's, uh, he's, he's there to talk about something which used to be considered quite radical, and that is, that is climate justice. Mm. Okay, so what is meant by that, Mike? What is the idea of climate justice? Well, essentially, the idea that's being pushed is, uh, is reparations for the richest countries that are responsible for most of the emissions to pay the poorer countries who are facing some of the worst damage from the climate crisis. Right. So countries like Australia compensating other places? Well, yes. Although, you know, there's, there's argument, of course, whether you call it compensation or whether you call it restitution or whether you call it damages. But but yes, that, that's what the suggestion is. Because the, the 23 richest industrialised nations, including Australia, are responsible for half of all historical emissions of the main greenhouse gas, you know, carbon dioxide. So um, it's the burning of fossil fuels that is the foundation of the wealth of the rich countries. But it's come at huge environmental and economic cost, and, and that cost is disproportionately borne by countries that have not seen the same benefits. So the idea that there has to be some mechanism to help poorer countries pay for the damage and the loss, as well as to prepare themselves for future damage, is dominating this, this conference or has dominated this conference to this point. The idea that rich countries should, should compensate poor countries is not a new one. The Pacific's been talking about it for over 30 years. But this time, after long negotiations, which, um, which delayed the start of the COP, because there was resistance on the part of some of the rich nations, the agenda has finally included an item for consideration, 
which is that matters relating, and I'm quoting it here now, matters relating to funding arrangements responding to loss and damage associated with adverse effects of climate change, including a focus on addressing loss and damage. That's what the agenda item says. Mm. So it's up. They got it up. Right. Okay. So why is it then, if these Pacific nations have been pushing for this for, for three decades, that it's only now that it's finally being considered? Well, well, several reasons. I mean, I, I think you can't ignore the uh, the symbolism of the fact that this is the first COP uh, to take place in Africa, and and that's big because obviously a lot of the uh, the unequal consequences of climate are falling on on places like Africa, as well as the Pacific, obviously, and and parts of Asia, but particularly Africa. So that's one reason. Also, the UN General Secretary Antonio Guterres used his opening remarks to specifically push this kind of climate justice. The deadly impacts of climate change are here and now. Loss and damage can no longer be swept under the rug. It is a moral imperative. It is a fundamental question of international solidarity and climate justice. But really, the, the reason it's on the agenda is because of numbers. You know, when, when this push started 30 years ago, it was just a few small Pacific nations. Now, most of the developing world is behind it you know, the so-called G77 plus China, which is actually well over 100 countries. I can't remember the exact number, but they're pushing it. So so essentially, the developing world had the numbers to get it up. And uh, and they did. And, and having uh, pushed for it, we've seen some very, very powerful speeches from various leaders, you know. The Barbados Prime Minister, Mia Motley, was particularly articulate, I thought. We believe that it is critical that we address the issue of loss and damage. The talk must come to an end. Our people on this earth deserve better. And what is more, our leaders know better. I ask the people of the world and not just the leaders, therefore, to hold us accountable and to ask us to act in your name to save this earth and to save the people of this earth. The choice is ours. What will you do? What will you choose to save? Thank you. We'll be back in a moment. The Every Moment Matters campaign provides accurate, evidence-based information and advice about alcohol, pregnancy and breastfeeding. It has been created by the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education and endorsed and funded by the Australian Government. Alcohol use during pregnancy can lead to Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder, or FASD, a lifelong disability. So make the moment you start trying the moment to stop drinking. Visit everymomentmatters.org.au to find out more. For long-time editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel. I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for. Please, <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very pro-therapy on yeah, this. If, if that's what you're using writing for. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. 
Mike, when we talk about the idea of of climate justice and and reparations, so wealthier nations who have done damage to the environment, whose actions have and continue to accelerate climate change, paying reparations to smaller and less wealthy countries who are seeing the effects of those decisions directly, are we able to quantify what we mean? How do we decide on what the cost of climate change is and and who should pay what and, and where those funds should go? Well, it, it's it's still a work in progress. I mean, you know, the, these are the details that are to be worked out. Getting it on the agenda is just a first step. And you're quite right, you know, deciding who apportions the money, how it's apportioned, etc. But what we can say with absolute clarity is that there is a, an injustice here, that it is directly impacting poorer countries more than, than wealthier countries. And, and let me go to some numbers here. According to the United Nations Office of Disaster Risk Reduction, which monitors calamities of all kinds all around the world. There's been an increase of about 83% in climate-related disasters since the 1980s. So more floods, more storms, more droughts, more fires, more extreme heat events, more extreme climate-slash-weather events, all kinds. So not only have their number gone up dramatically, but the UN office goes on to point out that while the dollar value of losses are often greater in high-income countries simply because they have better infrastructure. In relative terms, it's poor countries that, that sustain the greater loss. And as a share of GDP, the cost to poorer countries is close to 10 times as high as that for, for higher-income nations. So, you know, in terms of their, of their actual wealth, they're suffering much more greatly. Now, no doubt, as you alluded to, there are practical difficulties, you know, to implementing this. You know, how do you apportion the costs among the wealthier nations, you know? Some of the wealthier nations have obviously contributed much more to the problem than others. And to be frank, you know, at this stage, we're, we're seeing all sorts of proposals being floated. You know, maybe you could fund a, a loss and damage fund by a levy on countries according to their historical contributions to greenhouse emissions. Or you could tax billionaires. Or maybe there could be some kind of subsidised insurance scheme, which is a suggestion being pushed by some of the European countries like Germany and Austria. So we're still at a very early stage, I guess you would say, in working out how such compensation might be provided. Some wealthy nations are actually doing something to, to address this issue right now. This COP needs to recognise much more fully the fundamental issues of fairness and justice that lie at the heart of the climate crisis. Scotland announced um, last year that it would put into a fund to pay developing countries for damage done by industrialisation in Scotland. I mentioned Scotland's industrial past earlier. That is a source of pride to us, but it should also be a real cause for reflection. The First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, said the fund was for... ...the loss and the damage that has been and is being suffered already by communities around the world due to drought, floods, desertification, loss of life and population displacement. Which is great, right? But even after she upped it this last week at the conference by a further £5 million, it's still just £7 million that Scotland's putting in. Of course, I recognise that in a global context, our fund is very small, but it is nevertheless important. And through it, we are acknowledging head-on these fundamental issues of international fairness. And, and clearly, you know, we've spoken about the size of the, of the need here. That's not going to touch the sides. And so far, few other countries have shown any great interest in contributing to a fund of any such kind.
Right. And what about here in Australia? Are there any signs that the Australian government would consider reparations perhaps to go to countries in the Pacific that are seeing rising sea levels threaten their homes right now? Well, the, f- the fact is that so far, Anthony Albanese has evaded the question. It was actually put in question time last week by Peter Dutton. I call the Honourable Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Prime Minister, the Coalition has ruled out paying compensation to other nations for the effects of climate change. Will the Albanese government also rule out signing Australia up to compensating other countries as part of the deal being negotiated at COP27 in Egypt? And Peter Dutton, you know, of course... Uh, you know, is very much again. Well, the coalition generally is uh, is is very sceptical of the whole idea of of uh, putting in money to deal with climate change, and always have been. The minister for climate change will give the call to the prime minister. Order. And and frankly, Albanese did not um, rule it out, nor did he rule it in. Instead, uh, you know, he had to go back at Dutton, recalling how Dutton was caught back in 2015 joking with Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison about um, rising sea levels in the Pacific. Thanks very much, Mr Speaker. One of the things I won't do is, in front of a boom mic, make a joke about our island neighbours down there. That's one of the things that I won't do. I won't do that. So I think we can say that the Australian government has been, at this stage, kind of dancing around the issue, mm. and, and which is understandable because it is, for Australia in particular, quite a delicate issue at the moment. Mm, Okay. And when you say it's a delicate issue, is what you mean there that the Australian government knows that it needs to address climate change and there is significant pressure both from voters and from Pacific nations in our region on that. But at the same time, we continue to maintain our our coal and gas industry and to be responsible for, for significant emissions as a result of that. Well, well, yes, absolutely. You've, you've, You've summed it up as well as I possibly could. And and our Pacific neighbours can't be ignored. And it's particularly touchy for us at the moment because the government has announced its intention to jointly fund or to jointly bid for a COP, COP31 in 2026, to be held jointly with our Pacific nation neighbours. And that could potentially be very embarrassing if, you know, we continue to be one of the world's major emitters, both in our own right and through the the emissions we export in the form of coal and gas, you know, we are both the biggest per capita emitter in the developed world as a nation. We're also the biggest exporter of, of carbon through through coal and gas exports. So, that, you know, there, there will be continuing advocacy from the Pacific Island countries for serious engagement on loss and damage and what they're owed by fossil fuel powered countries such as ours. And this is felt really deeply in the region. You know, there's a, a as Various experts were telling me there's there's a, a shared sense of loss and damage that climate change is causing and will continue to cause in the future. So the the Albanese government has to do something. The question is whether it it kicks into a big bucket of money, such as is being proposed for loss and damage, or whether it does something more regional, putting more money into um, you know mitigation, but also. In the event that there is a major disaster, of course, Australia has always uh, pitched in and would would do so in the future. So uh, there are things that Australia could do to uh, lift its game and improve its image in the region without necessarily joining a global loss and disaster fund. Mm, sure, but you've got people like Shiva calling for for climate justice. So what happens for for him and people who live in the country that he's from if if the world can't 
agree on some way to to fund compensation or reparations, where does that leave people like him and and people who live in Pacific nations? Well, it, it leaves them struggling in poverty, and and potentially it leaves them having to abandon their countries. The number of refugees in the world last year um, was like 21 million, I think. Mia Motley was suggesting that it could be a billion by 2050 because uh, climate change will make parts of the world uninhabitable. And in the case of the Pacific, it will simply inundate some parts, some islands in the Pacific. So if, if we don't do something on this, we're going to see immense movements of people. Already, quite apart from the number of refugees, there's like 30 million internally displaced people around the world. So they haven't left their countries, but they've been displaced within their countries by the consequences of climate change. Yes, I've had I've had family members from my um, from my village who've had to relocate uh, to other parts of Fiji. In Shiva's home country, Fiji, still there's 40,000 to this day displaced. Uh, but it takes time, you know. It doesn't it doesn't happen within within a year, within two years. It could take 10 years to just finally connect back to this land. But it's still not ancestral land for them. So there's an immense problem to be faced here. Uh, and for 30 years, we've been coming cop after cop, going to UN meetings after UN meetings, climate justice meetings after climate justice meetings, to negotiate for our lives uh, and for our survival. And, and the fact is, the developed world has, has got a very difficult choice here. They can either ante up with lots of money to pay compensation for, for the historical wrong that has been done to these nations, or they can see mass probably uncontrollable movement of people around the world, which of course brings its its own costs. Finally, the time for talk is over and we need to see some real meaningful action at this COP. And um, we've been talking this whole time that we wanted, we want a dedicated loss and finance facility of COP27 and the Pacific Islands, Fiji included, have been very clear that that's what they want. Um, a dedicated loss and damage finance facility established at this COP. So sooner or later, the wealthy nations of the world are going to have to face up to the fact that, you know, we're all in this together and, and we've got to start really putting in. Mm. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au. Also in the news today, Turkish police have arrested a suspect in the bombing of a busy pedestrian street in Istanbul. The blast in the popular pedestrian street of Istiklal killed six people and injured 81 others. Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said that the attack smells like terrorism. And emergency services have carried out more than 100 rooftop rescues in New South Wales, with thousands of New South Wales residents told to evacuate due to flash flooding. The Bureau of Meteorology says the immediate threat of severe thunderstorms has passed, but conditions remain susceptible to flooding if there's more rainfall. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.